Take your Bibles to Haggai chapter 1. Now, tonight the sermon is not about pride, but you are more than welcome to use the front of your Bible to find the index and look up what page number yours is on. If you have a Bible like mine, which I highly doubt you do, which mine is a Thompson Chain Reference Bible, it will be on 995, but I don't think that you'll have a Bible like mine. Haggai chapter 1. Now, I have about 26 minutes to preach this sermon, and I'll be honest with you, when I began to create this sermon, I thought it was going to be very short, and then I got involved in studying it and looking at some of the particulars about it. And I told my wife earlier today, it's kind of a very obscure passage in the Bible, and um, uh, which that is just uh, made obvious by the pages still being flipped. Um, but it is such a, a strange lesson, and there's a lot of information that we have to take, and I'll be honest with you, I think this is an hour sermon, but I am going to cut it in half. So if something doesn't make sense by the end of the sermon, it's because I'm really just winging it up here, okay? I did study. The Duke game came on, and I stopped studying. So uh, uh, we'll just see how this thing goes. But Haggai chapter number one. Now, I will do my very best to give you all the back story, the historical context, and everything that's going on, but really try paying attention about what God says here in Haggai chapter 1, verse number 1. The Bible says, in the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet of, unto Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Josedek, the high priest, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, The time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lie waste? Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Ye have sown much, and bring in little. Ye eat, but ye have not enough. Ye drink, but ye are not filled with drink. Ye, ye clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the mountain, and bring wood, and build the house, and I will take pleasure in it. And I will be glorified, saith the Lord. Ye looked for much, and lo, it came to little. And when ye brought it home, I did blow upon it. Why? saith the Lord of hosts. Because of mine house that is waste, and ye run every man unto his own house. Therefore the heaven over you is stayed from dew, and the earth is stayed from her fruit. And I called for a drought upon the land, and upon the mountains, and upon the corn, and upon the new wine, and upon the oil, and upon that which the ground bringeth forth, and upon men, and upon cattle, and upon all the labor of the hands. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people did fear before the Lord. 
Then spake Haggai, the Lord's messengers, uh, messenger in the Lord's message unto the people, saying, I am with you, saith the Lord. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and the son of, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and did work in the house of their, the Lord of hosts, their God, in the four and twentieth day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. Let's have a word of prayer and ask the Lord to bless the sermon tonight. Father, we are so thankful to be meeting as a local New Testament church. I specifically thank you, Lord, for this group of people who decided to come to church tonight, regardless of other obligations or responsibilities. They're here, and they have, by their presence, proclaimed to you that they want to hear from you, and that they want the message of God to penetrate and infiltrate their heart so that they would be moved to a, a moving decision or a motivation. Father, I pray that you would tonight so, so quickly and abruptly move people that it would be quite obvious that the Spirit of the Lord is present tonight. Father, just use me as an empty and broken vessel, Lord. I just want you to use me. But Lord, I ultimately know that I have no ability and nothing to uh, please you apart from what you can do through me. So God, I pray that you would do that tonight. I pray all this in your son's precious name. Amen. Now, I've been in a lot of churches in my life, whether it was traveling with my father to go listen to him preach or to uh, you know, uh, go to college, and we would go to chapels every now and again, to not just chapel, but local churches there in the uh, uh, California area. We'd minister to those people. I've been to friends' churches, I've been to my wife's church, I've been to churches all over this great land, and the other day I was interviewed for something for my college, surprising that they wanted to use me, yes, but I'm not sure why. But in there, they chose, as I was interviewed, I don't even remember how many words I wrote back, it's bad when they have to uh, censor your answers, they just completely took out a couple questions they had asked me. But one, the one thing that they took out and bolded to catch people's attention was this, that I had said, I have the opportunity to stand before and preach the Word of God to the greatest people in all the world every week. And that was the thing that caught their attention and they were going to use as a catch line to catch other people's attention. You know what? I meant what I said. I believe, as I stand here tonight, I could not be more honest, more transparent with you, but I believe we are in the greatest church in the world. I've been to a lot. And I have been in the church that a lot of people would consider the greatest North American church in all the world. And I'll tell you this, I was miserable because I wanted to be here. Now you can think what you want. And you can always believe the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. And, <laughs> hey... Cows pee on grass all the time, so occasionally it may be. I just made that up. That probably didn't go over well. We'll edit that out of the radio. Hey, look. I believe this with my whole heart. We are in an amazing church. Full of amazing people. And I'll just tell you this. There's no place like home. Now tonight, that's what I want to talk to you about. A bunch of people who decided to make their own home more important than the house of the Lord. Look with me tonight. 
I, I do need to give you some of the background information on what's going on here. The book of Haggai was written, obviously, to children of Israel. It's a sermon, if you will, right here in chapter number 1. I've prepared for you a timeline. This is the only way that I could make sense of it in my own self, how all of this worked out. And in fact, Brother Chris alluded to this. He said, uh, the children of Israel were in bondage. Dad even referenced it this morning in his, in his sermon, that the children of Israel, once they returned from their bondage, they were as those that dreamed. And it basically they were saying, it's like a dream come true that we're home. So if that uh, timeline would be put on the screens, maybe I can help you understand the context of our, uh, uh, of our sermon tonight. Maybe Brother JT is looking it up. He's panicking right now. We only dock his pay for every second that he doesn't get it up there. So he's not worried about it. Basically, what's taking place here is I'm going to show you if we can get it up. If not, you just have to pay attention. In 600 B.C., this is basically around the time that the children of Israel went into the Babylonian captivity. Many estimate that it was 605 B.C. when Babylon came and besieged Jerusalem and took Daniel captive. You remember they took the princes and the governors? Oh, yes, sir. How many, was anybody counting? Was that $67 that he doesn't get paid this week? Was it, I, I, I don't know. But this, so our timeline begins around 600 B.C., as I mentioned earlier, 605 was probably when Daniel was taken captive by King Nebuchadnezzar. He came and basically uh, did defeat uh, the Jewish people. And that was in 605, but our timeline begins here in 600 because then Nebuchadnezzar came back and took all of Israel into captivity. Now, they, it was a split remnant. By, what, what, by that I mean 10,000 or so Jews went back to Babylon, and they were kind of like Daniel, made governors, made princes, and they were to be educated in Babylonian culture. But a vast majority of the Jews were still living in Jerusalem. Now that's 597 when the Babylonian captivity officially begins, and most people would agree on this within one year B.C. Now, B.C. is interesting because we actually work numbers down as opposed to how we do it now, so... You go from 597 B.C. to 586 B.C. And this is one of the most important dates in all of Jewish history, in all of Israel's history. 586 B.C., Solomon's temple was destroyed. And this is actually when uh, Babylon comes back into uh, uh, Judah and comes back into Jerusalem. And even though Solomon's temple was beautiful and magnificent, the Babylonians destroyed the temple. Now, many of the times when you read about Jewish history, this was a very dark time. Because if you re remember the desire that David had in his own heart to prepare and to build the temple of God, and God would not allow him, for he was a man of war. Solomon then had the great honor and privilege of doing it, and Solomon spared no expense like his father spared no expense. In 586 B.C., that temple, Solomon's temple, was destroyed. Now, if you fast forward to 538 B.C., the children of Israel returned from the Babylonian captivity. And if you see there, you see two arrows that are quite, quite close to one another, 538 B.C. and 536 B.C. Now, you see there the red arrow at 536 B.C., almost right in the middle of our timeline, 
That is the second temple's foundation is laid. Now we'll actually read in our, our sermon tonight when that takes place. But in 536 B.C., they lay the foundation. So as soon as they get back from the captivity, what's the first thing on their mind? The same thing that's been on their mind while they were in captivity. We have no place to worship, no place to bring our God glory. There's no place that is our God's house. And so obviously, as soon as they get back from captivity, they prepare and they lay the foundation in 536 B.C. Now what I want you to notice is the gap between the the second temple's foundation being laid and the actual construction beginning in 521 B.C. Now, why was there a 15-year gap between when they laid the foundation and when they began to frame and construct the temple of God? Well, there's a lot of answers. There's an answer that the in Ezra chapter 3, I don't know if I'll have time to look at it to be quite frank with you. The, uh, there's a group of people, the enemies of the children of God, they come in and they want to uh, build the temple of God with them. And they say, we would like to have a part because we seek after your God as well. And basically what takes place is the children of Israel say, you have no part in building the temple of God. And I think that was a very wise thing because if David had no business building God's temple, I would think that a Gentile had no business building God's temple. And so they say, you have no part in the building and the construction of the temple. Because of this, this offends the enemies of Israel. In Ezra chapter 4, we actually see where they hire people, and the Bible uses this term, to frustrate the progress of the temple. Because of that, they get disqualified, and and they uh, begin to get heartache, and, and they just say, it's just not the right time. I simply want to give you three things. I don't have very much time this evening. I want to share three items with you. First of all, it's easy to get our focus on our own home and not God's home when we get sidetracked. It's also easy when we get bushwhacked. And it's also easy when we don't get heart attacked. Look here, verse uh, number four. I want to show you this. Haggai chapter number one, verse number four. The word of God comes to Haggai. Now, this is not Haggai speaking. This is the Lord speaking through Haggai. Verse number 4, the Bible says, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lie waste? Basically, what happened is the children of Israel had gotten sidetracked. From the time when they arrived in 538 B.C., it seemed as if the very first thing on their mind was to prepare the temple and to begin to lay the foundation. It's quite easy to see the very minimal gap that they were ready, man. They were ready to pour the foundation and get construction began. But somewhere here, they get more focused on their own residence and they lose focus of God's home. But see... I believe God has established three institutions. I believe he's established the home or marriage. I believe he's established the church, and that's Jesus saying, uh, uh, I, 
he's saying that he would be receive glory through the church. He also says that he would start the church. He would use Peter as a small rock, but that upon Christ, the big rock, he would build his church. And I believe he's established the church as an institution. I also believe he showed us in his ministry that the government is an institution. We are to be subject to higher powers. However, we are never to obey men rather than God. So if it comes down to it, I will preach the word of God over what the laws of man say. If it comes down to it, if somebody runs me off their doorstep because I'm not lawfully permitted to uh, propagate the gospel there, I'll tell you what, I, I'll, I'll spend the night in jail and I'll, I'll see if I still have a song at midnight or whether I've fallen asleep on those hard beds they have. You see, I believe there's three institutions. And I believe that your home is quite an important one. I believe at the root of every good church is good homes. That's why our church spends so much money and so much time developing programs for children and Awana's programs and Bible memory programs. And that's the only reason that I'm even employed is because I have to deal with your troubled year teenagers. And, and so I have to deal with them. We try to do our very best to build a program around children. You know why? Because we're trying to disciple and develop the mother and father. And we're trying to show the kids what their parents are trying to become. But I don't ever believe that your home should take precedence over God. What took place in this passage, and I understand you have to give me a little liberty. This is Israel, and you can use all those excuses that you want. But I believe the truth is fundamental God's house and serving God with your own life is the only route to happiness that the Christian can find. A Christian will simply find happiness when he discovers God's will and does it with his whole heart. Until you find that, you'll be miserable. You will never find happiness. And I believe that's what happened here. The Bible even alluded to it here in Haggai because the Lord says, you went out and planted and nothing came up. You went out to drink and you didn't get satisfied. And I like this. This is my favorite illustration the Bible uses. You have money and you put it in a bag and it's almost like the bag has holes in it. How many of y'all have ever checked your bank statement to make sure that people aren't stealing your money? Because it's short. It's not lasting as long as it used to. Have y'all? Yeah. One time uh, I was in college and dad called me. It was my very first semester. Dad called me and said, Andrew. I went out to college, I had about $2,500 in my bank account just for emergencies and for, like, so Taco Bell was an emergency. And, and so I had about $2,500 in there. I get a call one day from my dad, and he says, Andrew, is there a reason why your account's been overdrawn? I said, I don't know, Dad. Maybe the girl at Applebee's took my card and took a picture of it and developed this scheme to whereby I sit. You know what? I had spent all that money. Nobody stole it. Nobody uh, uh, stole my identity. I had, I had spent all the money. And then I got to deal with Dad. And that wasn't very fun. You ever felt like maybe you're, you, you put a lot of effort into your job and, and, and you, you try your very best to manage your money and it almost feels like you got holes in the bag you're putting it in? Now, I want to be very careful here. I know I'm not doing a good job, but you know what? You can just deal with it. That's the way I feel about it. I just believe 
that in this passage, God says that he put his hand against people that did not make him his, their, their priority. You read the passage in the entirety, God says he was the one causing their crops not to grow. God says he was the one giving them a drought, even though they wanted rain. You know why? Because they had become their own priority. They'd gotten sidetracked. And I believe that teaching your kids good moral values through sports is very important. I played every sport known to man, well, at least the important ones, you know, not soccer. Not, I'm just kidding, Josh. I'm just kidding, John. I'm just kidding, Brother Luke. I'm just kidding, kind of. But um, I played basketball, baseball, football, golf, um, tennis. I know that's surprising, but I looked really good in short shorts. So I played all of these sports, and I, I believe that they helped uh, shape me and probably shaped me in a... Uh, I probably need to get back to them because they're shaping me in a different way now, but uh, I believe that sports teach your kids good things. I, I believe that you going and spending time with your family around a ball field or around a basketball court is very important. I, I think those are good things. But don't ever let something good take the place of something that's great. I drove by yesterday. We are up here at the church. from uh, I got here at 8 a.m., and I was here till 8 p.m. I drove by the ball fields at 8 a.m., and I could not believe the amount of vehicles there. And I'm not saying it's wrong to be at a baseball field. I'm sure one day when Thomas Cordell looks at me, in case y'all didn't know its name, it's Thomas Cordell because it is a boy, even though the doctors have not said that. <laughs> One day when Thomas Cordell looks at me, and he's got that Nolan Ryan cannon of an arm, and he says, Dad, I want to sign up for baseball. Do you think that I'm going to say, no, son, I don't want you to succeed. I don't want you to be good at something. I've got to teach you to be humble and to not go out there and beat those little children like you're seven age groups above them. You, you think I'm going to say that? I'm going to say, son, I will gladly sign you up to crush the larynx and jugular of every small child that wants to jump in your way. And I'll be the parent on the bleachers that says, brush him back! He's crowding the plate! He's, this is T-ball, preacher! I'll be that guy! But at the end of the day, let's think, like the Bible says, and this should have been the title of the sermon, consider our way. Think about it. Open your mind. When you get my age, it does not matter how good you could shoot a basketball. When you get my age, it doesn't matter how many patches you have on your letterman jacket. When you get my age, none of those things matter. And you as an adult need to see that. You say, I hope they get an education. Well, why aren't you on them about their report card like you are about them hitting a stupid ball? Think about what we're doing. We are putting priorities in the wrong order. You know where you ought to be uh, on a Saturday? You say, well, my kids got T-ball on Saturday. Then you ought to find a time in the week where somebody will go out with you and knock some doors to invite somebody to, to church. You ought to find a time in the week. You know bus kids are home all week long. In fact, I've discovered that kids are not home on Saturday because they're at the ball field. Think about what we're doing. The home is so vitally important. It is the backbone of the church. You know what the heart is, though? Christ. 
The heart is getting the message of the gospel out. And man, I need a backbone to stand up, but without a heart, my backbone does me no good. Think about what we're doing. We cannot fall into this idiocy, this, this, this path that the children of Israel find themselves in. The Bible says, consider your way. Your home should not be more important than the house of God. Man, I'm just so afraid that we have fallen into a convenient, comfortable Christianity. And as much as we try to defend it and, and work against it, I'll be honest with you, I think, I think whether you want to claim it's the modern church or the devil, a casual Christianity is seeping. And I tell you folks, we need to think about what's going on. And if your family spends more time throughout the week thinking and preparing for different activities outside the church, let's think about it. Because none of that really matters in eternity. Let's think about it. We cannot get sidetracked. Secondly, we cannot get bushwhacked. Now, I do want you to take your Bible to Ezra. I don't want you to think that I'm just lying to you or telling you a story. Ezra, that's a little bit easier to find. I believe it has 13 chapters in it. So you should be able to do the Baptist shuffle and get there. That has a 10 chapters, I'm sorry. It's right before Nehemiah. The Baptist shuffle is not a dance. That is when you hear the pages of everyone's Bible. There's a three-turn limit. You can only do the Baptist shuffle three times. Then you need to consult the index on that. That's what I say. Ezra chapter 3, I want you to notice in verse 10. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord. Now that is our arrow here. That is in 536 B.C. The second temple's foundation is laid. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, they set the priests in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord after the ordinance of David, the king of Israel. You go on down throughout the passage here. And they are so excited that there are some that weep. And there are some that uh, shout for joy. There are some who saw the previous glory of the first temple, of Solomon's temple. They saw that and now they've seen the foundation laid. And it is such a monumental change. They're so excited that the older folks who lived when Solomon's temple was around, they are in tears because they're so happy. And all the young folks that didn't have the opportunity to see the first temple, they're just shouting, what an accomplishment! Glory be to God! Now look in verse number 1 in chapter 4. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the children of the captivity builded the temple unto the Lord God of Israel, then they came to Zerubbabel and to the chief uh, of the fathers and said unto them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as ye do. And we do sacrifice unto him since the days of Esahar, yeah, good luck, king of Asher, which brought us up hither. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the chief of the fathers of Israel said unto them, Ye have nothing to do with us to build an house to do uh, to build an house unto our God, but we ourselves together will build. And if anything is going to be accomplished in our church, let us note that it will be together. Uh, it cannot be a staff-type deal, or 
I tell you what, we have a staph infection. It can't just be a layman type deal. We must all build together. And they even said that here. But we ourselves together will build unto the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, hath commanded us. Then the people of the land weakened the hands of the people of Judah and troubled them in building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. In other words, they had been sidetracked because of their own houses, and they wanted to make sure that they had good homes for their families, and, and that's a good thing. But not only do they get sidetracked, now they're bushwhacked. The enemies get told something that they don't like, and so they begin to frustrate the purposes of the building of the temple. They get right to the temple. The, the enemies come up and they say, we want a part. And the children of Israel say, you have no part with us in the building of the temple of God. Now notice, they did not say you have no part with our God. Let us be very clear. Grace has always been grace from Adam to me. Christ has always wanted all men to come to salvation. Old Testament did not exclude any Gentile. Ask Rahab. You see, God simply used the children of Israel to, be, to bring glory to himself so that everyone could look to them and say, we want that. The problem is a lot of uh, Gentiles wanted that plus what they already had. And so they look and they say, we want to help you build. And the Jews say, you have no part in the building of the temple. And then the, the enemies, they frustrate them. Now, I don't know what that means. Maybe they turned a lot of pigeons loose. And so they made it hard to work and stay clean. Thank you, Brother Doug. appreciate that. Yeah, I appreciate that. Maybe they... Uh, uh, wet the foundation every day so that they could not build effectively. I don't know. The Bible doesn't give us co complete directions as to what they did to frustrate their purposes. But would you agree with me? It's quite clear that they went to work every day and then they got there and they said, well, we can't work today. Or when they were working, they made it hard. Maybe the children of Israel were sitting there building on the home or on the temple of God, laying the foundation, and the, the world or the enemies of God came and just blared some loud rap music. I wonder what rap music looked like in Babylon. I don't know. I'm not even going to go that ever. Y'all with me. I don't know what it was, but the world did not like the fact that they had their God, and they also did not want them to build the temple of God. And so they did whatever they could to deter, distract, to uh, disdain them from progressing with the temple of God. Now, we live in a world that's farther away from God now, today, than it's ever been. Now, it's always been away from God. I think that's pretty obvious. If the world hated me, it, uh, it will hate you also. I think there's a biblical uh, uh, teaching that the world has nothing to do with our God. God wants all men to come out of the world and to be saved. But you understand there is more oppression in America today, politically, economically, socially, against the church. The government's trying to take tax uh, uh, 
uh, what is that, not tax-free, but tax exemption away from the church. They're trying to pass laws that preachers can't preach against homosexuality uh, because it's a not just a lifestyle, it is truly something you're born with. And they're trying to pass laws about that. One day, it literally may come to the fact that if me or the senior pastor get up here and preach against homosexuality, we could be turned in and go to prison. We are getting further away from biblical teaching and closer to world tyranny today than we've ever been. Our government does not want the message of the gospel out. Uh, uh, The world does not want the message of the gospel out. You know what I love? That story about that Wiccan lady. I knocked on a a lady who is uh, religious and Wiccan. You know what that is? She's a witch. That's what it is. And my favorite thing is, I don't know who it was knocking on the door. I just want to imagine for my own sake, it was some little bitty bus kid, just seven years old, probably some old man. But, and I just want to see them with a track. Chasing a witch. No, this is a really good message. You've got to hear. Jesus loves me. We can sing it. Jesus loves No, it's really good. You love it. And I would love to see that witch doing all the the evasive maneuvers that she could come up with. Good luck, camera. (laughs) I would love to have seen that. You know why the world doesn't want our message out? Because it's powerful. That witch worships nature who my God in Colossians 1, John 1, uh, Hebrews 1... Uh, that same God who created all those things, that's the thing she worships. She worships powerful things. Oh man, the waves of the ocean are powerful. Powerful enough to sink uh, uh, large ocean liners. My God stepped out on the edge of a boat one day and said, Peace, be still. She worships creation. I worship the Creator. The world will do everything that they can to shut our message up. There is no doubt about it. You can take it to the bank. It happened here. It'll happen now. And it's only going to get harder and harder and harder. But Christian, what you ought to do is you ought to find you a place. And you ought to just scratch it off and say, this is where I'm going to serve. And I don't care who sidetracks me. I don't care what bushwhacks me. I don't care what comes down the pike. I am going to serve my God with all of my heart. Doesn't matter if it's a bus route, doesn't matter if it's discipleship, doesn't matter if it's reformers unanimous, it doesn't matter if it's the radio ministry, the audiovisual ministry. It could not matter less. The world does not want this message out. My friend, if you're not already busy doing something, my prayer for you is that you would no longer be bushwhacked by this old world telling you you're not good enough or that you can't do enough. You know what the greatest ability of every great man of God is? Their availability. 26 years old, my father did not look like the man of God he is today. <laughs> His bubble wasn't on the level yet, right? <laughs> that way you are. I think that's what we think. We think men of God have always been men of God. No. <laughs> they at one time did not look so clean. But they just said, God, use me. And regardless of all the discouragement, we talk about the discouragement of the ministry. You want to see what discouragement looks like? 
You go down to a homeless shelter. You go down to somebody who just overdosed on drugs. That's discouragement. Discouragement does not happen in the ministry. Discouragement happens in a hospital room with somebody who does not have hope. We just got to consider our ways. This world's not going to make it easy, but I don't remember ever being promised it would be easy. I don't ever remember where Christ had an easy journey on this earth. I just don't think that we're considering our ways. Thirdly, and I've kept you over your time, I'm so uh, sorry, but I really blame Chris Dyer. That song was a good minute and a half. I want you to see finally with me. And this was the children of Israel's salvation. They got a heart attack. They had a heart attack. And we think of heart attacks in a negative light. Obviously, we, we understand why. Because that is not natural. It can affect you in several ways. But ultimately, the thing that we all probably fear the worst is that a heart attack will cause us to die. But right here in our passage, there is a beautiful story. Back in Haggai, now we're no longer in Ezra. It's where God preaches a sermon. And be very clear, it was not Haggai's sermon, it was God's sermon. And the sermon was three simple words. Consider your ways. You know what they did so effectively and well? Is they did. They listened. And they got right. And you see, our text starts at that green arrow there. But in 521 is when the temple resumed. Construction resumed, and it was just a few five years later that the temple, the beautiful, amazing building, it was said that the temple was 20 stories high. It was an amazing work for God. But it was only when God's word attacked the heart of a bunch of stale, stagnant people, and they fixed it. You can react one of three ways tonight. You can react like Peter, as he's warming himself around a barrel, and he says, I don't know that Jesus character. I'm not one of them. And they look at him and say, no, we're certain you were with him. Your, your speech berayeth, or your speech betrays you. You sound just like Jesus. And when you spend some time with Jesus, you start singing a new song. You sound a little bit different. And he's warming himself around that barrel. And when he heard that rooster crow, you know what that was? That was God's sermon to Peter. Simple message. When he heard that, what did he do? He went out and wept bitterly and repented. And I believe, and you can believe whatever you want, you, as long as it's biblical, I believe it was that moment that made Peter the same Peter that we find in Acts chapter 2. It was not the Mount of Transfiguration. In one of his writings, he later goes on to say, man, what you have now is much better than what I saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. And not, not to downplay what he saw, but he's saying, you have a more sure word. Peter was on the Mount of Transfiguration, and that was not what shaped him as a man. 
It was the fact that God preached a sermon to his heart and said, Peter, you're not perfect. Peter, you make mistakes. Peter, my grace is always sufficient. And when sin did abound, grace did much more abound. And it was that sermon that spoke to Peter's heart and made him go out and become the man in Acts chapter 2. You can respond immediately. You can respond like Jonah. Three days he was in the belly of the well. You read that story. God was preaching to him the entire time. With every fragment of fish that floated by, with every piece of seaweed that wrapped around him, and you say, you don't believe that happened? Read your Bible. He felt like he was in the very belly of hell. No, no, Jonah, you're in the belly of the well. This got confused. Every moment of every second he was in that well's belly, you know what? God was preaching a sermon to him, saying, Jonah, get right. Jonah, all you have to do is repent. Jonah, just do what I've called you to do. Jonah, come. Jonah, uh, come back. But how long did it take him? Three days. You can put it off. Sure, you can. But I wouldn't encourage it. You know why I say that? It's because those three days hindered Jonah's spiritual growth so much that when he got to Nineveh, he preached the message of God, saw revival break out, and he said, I can't believe this is what God did. Three days. You can respond immediately. You can wait. But I'll tell you this. God says my spirit will not always strive with man. God's voice will get increasingly smaller as you put him off. And just like every strong fire, the more water that's applied, the smaller the fire gets. I almost said the smaller the smire snits. That wouldn't have been good. Or you can be like the rich young ruler. This is a sad story. He comes to Jesus, and I'll be honest with you, I think he's one of the most religious men in all the Bible. He had everything going for him. He was the kid, I've told the kids this before in the youth group, he was the kind of kid I want in the youth group. You know why? Because he's rich, and he probably took his youth pastor out to eat and probably paid for the bowling activity for the youth pastor. I'd love that. He had it all. He had the the wealth. He had authority. I think he was a good-looking young man. I, I believe he approached Jesus in the proper manner. He comes to Jesus and says, good master. I think he was a humble man. He had it all. But what did Jesus say? Yet one thing thou lackest. You know what? His house was his wealth. The thing that kept him sidetracked, the thing that kept him bushwhacked, and the thing that kept him from having a heart attack was his wealth. I'm done, what's your thing? What's your thing? Because if there's something that keeps you from coming to this altar, if there's something that keeps you from saying, God, if you want me to to go to Tanzania, I would go. God may never even want you in Tanzania, but he'd sure like to have you say you would. My concern is we're not thinking about our way. We're not considering our way. 
Y'all know I went to college in California, Lancaster Baptist Church, West Coast Baptist College. It is an amazing, amazing church. They average, when I was there, they were averaging about 5,500 people in church. It is an independent Baptist church. I mean, they're exactly like us. They sing songs like we do, a little better, but they sing them like us. They preach sermons like we do. I'll be honest with you, I think we're, we've probably got them beat there. But Some of y'all ain't even heard them. They're like, no, they don't. I know that's not true. They do dr- dramas. In fact, the drama that we're doing this year is one that me and my wife saw at Lancaster, and they did an amazing job on it. They have this one day, it's kind of like our anniversary, they call it Open House Sunday. Their auditorium will seat, I would, I would guess, around 3,000 people. And they have this one Sunday called Open House Sunday. They have two services in the morning. And we door knock and blitz and we just, we literally get out of school one day to go knock doors to invite people to church. And you be amazed at how many people are home in $500,000 houses at 11 o'clock. It's like, do you work from home? Are you a drug dealer? (laughs) You'd be amazed. We knock those doors. I promise you, some of the most amazing things I've ever seen is how they have to set chairs out in the aisles, and there's literally not enough room to navigate the auditorium because there's so many visitors there. The gospel is preached, and it is no big thing to see a hundred people walk the aisle. It's an amazing thing. I went to one, and they had an ex-NBA player, uh, like an event. They had an ex-NBA player come, and we packed the auditorium out with essentially bus kids, neighborhood kids. Most of them had never been in church, but they all wanted to meet this NBA player. They gave the gospel, and I promise you, There were so many people at the altar, and this was not like a decision, like a, we call you to full-time service. This was every single one of them were salvations. And they have a huge auditorium, and there were so many people at the altar, it looked like cattle herding around. Look, I've been in that church. It's an amazing thing. But I'll tell you this. I wouldn't trade one person from the room that you're sitting in tonight for any person out there. I wouldn't trade one sermon preached out there for the sermons that are preached here. And man, I tell you, I'm tanking tonight, and I wouldn't trade this one. I wouldn't trade one special. I wouldn't trade one bus worker. I wouldn't trade, well, maybe the buses. We could probably trade the buses. (laughs) I wouldn't trade one. You know why? Because I love this church. I love this church because of what it's done for me. I love this church for what it's doing for my family. I can't tell you how much I'm looking forward to my daughter growing up with kids like Luke and Sarah's children and Brother Brian Archer's and Miss, Miss Angela Archer's children. And, and so many children, uh, not the Bernie kids so much, but <laughs> I cannot tell you. How much I'm looking forward to seeing my daughter go over to their house and come back and tell me all the wicked things they do there. 
I, I love this church, and I would not trade one person, one, one, one child, any, I wouldn't trade anything for this church. You know what I've noticed in life? No matter how busy I get, I always make time for what's important to me. You know why? When people ask me how many hours I was up here yesterday, I ain't going to just be like, I ain't going to complain about it. You know why? Because this is important to me. I love fishing. I wouldn't have traded where I was yesterday for anything. I love, well, I don't love golfing so much, but I love a lot of things. I wouldn't have traded one of them for what took place inside this building yesterday. You have a decision to make. You can make other things more important. Yeah, you can have, you can have sports, you can have academics, you, you can have your job, sure. But there is nothing greater than what takes place inside these doors every time the doors are open. And if I were you, I would just ask you to do one thing. Consider your way.